When I was growing up, my brother and my sister affectionately nicknamed me Dense. Thank you very much. I guess I probably was a little too serious-minded in my youth to properly read others' intentions at times. Of course, I know now, you know, that it can be both annoying and pretty funny when someone misses the obvious. If someone misses the main point of the Bible, though, it isn't annoying or funny. It's tragic. We've been following the story of the Bible from its beginning, the creation account. Once sin entered the world, God promised Eve a deliverer who would come from her seed. God's plan to fulfill that promise in Jesus constitutes the remainder of the story. In fact, we might call the Bible the story of God's promise plan. His promise plan is the main point. As we delve further into the Bible, it becomes increasingly obvious that God's promise plan isn't only central to the story of the Bible, it ought to also be central in the life of every believer. God's plan is that Jesus will deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin and restore us to the relationship with him that he created us to enjoy. Now, in the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, we've seen that human beings proved again and again that sin held them in a relentless cycle of rebellion against their creator. Beginning with Genesis 12, we find that although God's promise plan remained unchanged, his strategy to reach human hearts took a new direction he began working through a particular family to reach the world, the family of Abraham. God's antidote to the calamity summarized in the first 11 chapters of the Bible would come through this family. The remainder of the Old Testament largely summarizes their history, particularly their spiritual history. Now, this week's lesson begins with some additional information about Abram's ancestry. Last week, we saw that the genealogy in the table of nations, that's Genesis 10, was interrupted by the account of the Tower of Babel, explaining why the nations spread out. With that story told, the genealogy resumes in chapter 11. Biblical genealogies are sometimes called horizontal genealogies, and sometimes they are vertical genealogies. The table of nations in Genesis 10 is an example of a horizontal or segmented genealogy, listing all of Shem, Ham, and Japheth's sons and many of their grandsons, or those whose tribes chose to unite with them as sons. Again, its purpose was to show how the population spread. By contrast, many biblical genealogies are the vertical type which include only one son of each father, generally the son through whom Christ descended. In ancient genealogies, that vertical type was commonly used to prove the authenticity of a king or a dynasty. Ancient genealogies aren't only described as horizontal or vertical, they can also be selective or complete. Some, some but not all, Conservative scholars believe the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 are complete, meaning 
No generations are skipped. If they are indeed these tight lists, those two genealogies would offer the advantage of helping solidify dates for certain events. However, if the list in Genesis 11 is complete, Noah would have still been alive in Abraham's day, a fact that seems to contradict the passage of substantial time that's implied in the tone of the genealogy. Now, a great many conservative scholars believe that the biblical genealogies tend to be selective. In other words, the names included are accurate, but they are a select representation of descendants, chosen to reflect symmetry either within the genealogy or between different lists. In support of this view, Hebrew scholars point out that the Hebrew word being, which in English we, we spell ben, we would say ben, not only means son, it also means grandson or descendant. Similarly, the word yelad, translated here, became the father of, not only means that, but also can mean became the ancestor of. Secondly, the lists often appear just a little too symmetrical to be complete. For example, the genealogies in Genesis 5, 11, and Ruth 4, you looked those up this week, they each have a total of 10 names, as you discovered. Interestingly, that's a pattern that's also found outside the Bible in the ancient Sumerian kings list. And then in Genesis 5 and 11, the tenth man in both lists has three sons. By selecting the names of key individuals to create an accurate, accurate, yet symmetrical list, the advantage would have been that these genealogies could be easily memorized, much more easily memorized, for oral transmission. But in the end, the main purpose of the list, which is to establish the ancestry of Christ, is unaffected by whether they're select or complete. The primary concern of the writer is that we acknowledge the connection between the individuals that are listed in these genealogies. Now let's talk more specifically about the genealogy of Genesis 11. There are two noticeable differences between it and the genealogy of Genesis 5. One is the greatly reduced lifespans of chapter 11. I'm sure you noticed that in reading them. These probably resulted from climatic changes on earth after the flood. They also could have resulted from changes in lifestyle, with the dispersion of the nations, and other deteriorating effects of sin on the population that took effect over time. Another difference is the pessimistic tone that's expressed and repeated in that phrase, and then he died, in chapter 5. That chapter is sandwiched between the tragedies of the fall and the flood, while chapter 11, the genealogy there, introduces hope through Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. But the parallels between these two genealogies are far more significant than the differences. The most important similarity, of course, is that both genealogies trace the ancestry of Christ. In, fa in fact, the Genesis 11 list takes up where the, gene the genealogy in Genesis 5 leaves off. 
Noah's life connects the two. The flood of his day and the dispersion that followed, it can be viewed as an interruption to one continuous genealogy that begins in Genesis 5 and continues in Genesis 11. God's promised salvation that would come, God's promise that his salvation would come through the seed of a woman, through a human mother, would come through a narrow line of faithful people. The flood was essential in protecting God's promise plan, the very promise plan the genealogies trace. Noah was the only remaining worshiper of God on earth in this his day. Have you thought about this? If God hadn't interceded by removing Noah's entire generation from the face of the earth, almost certainly within a generation, or at the most two, the earth wouldn't have had a single righteous person left. The continuation of the Genesis 5 genealogy in Genesis 11 indicates that, that uh, the flood removed that threat. Now let's look at the last verses of the Genesis 11 genealogy, verses 26 and 27, which say, After Terah had arrived, had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. So we learn that Terah, the tenth named descendant of Noah, had three sons. Abram, later renamed Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Several members of Terah's family, as it turns out, have names associated with moon worship. And Joshua 24.2 tells us that Terah was an idolater. Although Abram was faithful, like his ancestors Noah and Seth, clearly not all of his ancestors faithfully worshipped God. Apparently, Terah's son Haran died early in life, and the Bible doesn't give us any explanation for this. According to Jewish tradition, unlike faith-filled Abram, Haran was consumed by fire because he lacked faith. Now, we do know that he fathered a son, Lot, and two daughters, Milcah and Iscah. Lot plays an important role in the story of Genesis. He accompanied his wife Abram to the land of Canaan, where he caused a ton of trouble for Abraham. Eventually, Lot became the father of the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were relatives, but also enemies of the Israelites. Then there's Terah's son, Nahor. Nahor married his niece, Milcah. And some of their descendants later intermarried with Abram's family, thus also playing an important role in the story of Genesis. Nahor and Milcah were the parents of a man named Bethuel, and Bethuel fathered Laban and Rebekah. Both are important in the story. Rebekah became the wife of Abraham's son Isaac, and then Laban fathered two daughters, Leah and Rachel, the wives of Abram's grandson, Jacob. Through those wives and their servants, Jacob fathered 12 sons, the sons you know as the 12 who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the writer's purpose here in Genesis 11 was to point us to Abram. 
since it was through his descendants, the Israelites, that God would fulfill his promised plan. Abram married Sarai later in Genesis. We learn that Sarai was Abram's half-sister, a daughter of Terah. Sarai, renamed Sarah, was barren, and she wasn't the only matriarch of Israel who was barren. Since it was through these individuals that God promised to maintain the messianic line, their barrenness is central to the suspense of the story. From a natural perspective, it was unlikely that God would give Abram a child through his barren wife. Yet Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to Abram as righteousness. In other words, Abram placed his faith in God's promises, and he proved it in many of his life choices. That is the kind of faith that the Bible teaches to be saving faith. The unlikelihood that each of the barren matriarchs would produce a child is also a lesson to build our faith. God always, I mean always, keeps his promises, no matter how unlikely their fulfillment appears. Maybe that's a word you need to hear today. God always keeps his promises, no matter how unlikely their fulfillment appears. Well, the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, they link the patriarchs of Israel to the promised plan God gave Adam and Eve. As we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11, the fallen human race continued to move further and further away from the Creator. Choosing this one family, Abram's family, was God's design to advance his greater purpose in human history. It was through Abram's descendants that the written scriptures have been given to us. But even more importantly, Abram was the man through whom Jesus Christ, the promised deliverer, would descend. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised plan. And that brings us to our first principle today, which is that God's salvific promise plan is the golden thread that weaves the story of the Bible together from beginning to end. His promise plan weaves it all together. Now we understand that the story of the Bible is, of course, best understood when we remember its main idea. And that's this golden thread that weaves it all together, that God promised to deliver, as I said earlier, who would rescue us from the penalty and power of sin. He fulfilled that promise in Jesus. His promise plan is central to the story of the Bible. I hope you're getting that. Recently, my husband and I have had some pretty serious discussions about the years that lie ahead for us. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about retirement from service to the Lord. So we believe that he intends for us to serve him in some capacity all of our days. He and I are attempting, albeit very imperfectly, to leave behind our self-made agendas in order to make God's priorities our own. And none of us knows what our 
future health or other circumstances will be like. But we can be sure that God's plan for our future always includes passing on the message of his salvation in Jesus, his promise plan. Regardless of where we live or whether or not we're officially employed, for as long as we are physically able, this task is required of us. I wonder to what degree is God's overarching plan reflected in the plans you've made for your own life? Do you consider the opportunity to share the promised plan of God as central to your short-term and your long-term plans? Do your everyday decisions and choices reflect how much you value your place in God's plan? Well, after introducing Abram to us by way of a genealogy, the end of Genesis 11 and the first verse of chapter 12 tell us of God's call on Abram's life. Abram's father, Terah, took his grandson Lot, his son Abraham, and Abram's wife, Sarai, and left Ur of the Chaldees for Canaan. Lot was the sole male descendant of Terah's deceased son, Haran. Remember that. We talked about that a second ago. He, Abram, and Sarai, they all appear at this point to be under Terah's authority. Now, unlike the earlier chapters of Genesis, historians, when we get to this point, historians are finally willing to assign a loose date in the, somewhere in the Middle Bronze Age to the period of the patriarchs. There's information in 1 Kings 6.1 that provides a basis for a formula by which scholars have been able to pinpoint a date for the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, and then using other given lengths of time for events that precede the exodus, we can work backwards to attribute a relative date of 2166 BC for the birth of Abraham and 2091 BC for his entrance into Canaan. Genesis 11.31 says that Terah and his party set out from Ur of the Chaldeans. From archaeology, a great deal is known about a large coastal city in southern Mesopotamia, that's southern, uh, modern southern Iraq, named Ur. Excavations at that site have traced its history from the 5th millennium B.C. until it was abandoned about 300 B.C. Ur was the capital of ancient Sumer. In Abram's day, it and the surrounding region were ruled by Ur, U-R, Namu, N-A-M-M-U, or also Ur III, he's called. Ur III ushered in a renewed, and as it turns out, a final resurgent of a surprisingly advanced Sumerian culture. Old Sumerian Epics and myths were put into their final form during this period. Archaeological finds include a library holding thousands of cuneiform documents. Among these are legal, economic, and judicial tests, texts that attest to the complex roles the government and temple played in the lives of Ur's citizens. Doesn't sound too different from today. The ruins of the temple tower 
Ur-Namu built also still exist. The homes were large with many rooms and capis indoor plumbing. Hmm. I think it's interesting to consider that Abram spent his early life in such a relatively modern urban setting since God eventually called him to a tent-dwelling nomadic lifestyle in a distant land. According to verse 31, although the group intended to go to Canaan, they settled in Haran. Now those with English translations of the Bible are going to note the similarity between the name of that city and the name of Abram's brother. But in Hebrew, the names are entirely different. So in some of the newer translations, such as mine, the city is spelled with two R's and the brother of Abram is spelled with one to make that distinction. There's really no connection between the two. Although Abram's living brother Nahor isn't listed among the party that left Ur and settled in Haran, later in Genesis we actually find Nahor's family also living in that area. Now the city of Haran was 600 miles north of the great Ur on the Euphrates, and the journey would have taken Terah, Lot, and Abram at least 31 days at a pace of 20 miles a day. And of course, that's without accounting for any periods of rest. For one reason or another, under Terah's authority, the party stopped and settled in Haran. The term settled suggests an established residence. The Bible text later refers to the region of northern Mesopotamia surrounding Haran as Pedan Aram, A-R-A-M, and Aram, A-R-A-M, Naharim. Aran's, Haran's residents were Aramean. Apparently, Abram's father kept him in Haran long enough for him to be considered a local resident because Deuteronomy 26.5 refers to Abram as an Aramean. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel incident was said to have resulted from settling rather than filling the earth as God commanded. Just a few verses later, we read that Terah's party settled in Haran, the obvious parallel, Castera, who's the patriarch and the authority over the party at this point, casts him in with the rebellious lot at Babel, at least in terms of his attitude toward obedience to God. Fortunately, his son Abram was of a different spiritual breed. After telling of, Ab of Terah's death in Haran at the end of chapter 11, Genesis 12 opens with God's call to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, if we read Genesis alone, we might conclude that God first called Abram to Canaan while he was living in Haran. But according to Acts 7, God actually appeared to Abram and called him to Canaan while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he came to Haran. Additionally, verse 31 of chapter 11 indicates that Terah intended to lead his party to Canaan when they first left Ur. you got to wonder why the idolatrous Terah was interested in going to Canaan. Had God spoken to him too? Seems unlikely. While we don't know Terah's motive, 
we do know God was in the process of separating Abram from his idolatrous family members. God had told Abram to leave his country and his people. In order for Abram to be free to call God, follow God's call in his life, his allegiance to his father needed to be broken, and in this case it was by Terah's death. God was paving the way for Abram to obey from the moment in Ur when he first called him. Now at the time of Terah's death, Abram found himself in a pretty bad situation. Here he was settled in a place where he wasn't supposed to be living, and his barren wife hadn't given him any children. If we put the Genesis and Acts passages together, it seems that at this desperate moment, either the Lord repeated his call or Abram was reminded of God's call. So at 75 years old, Abram finally left Haran for Canaan. One implication of God's call on Abram's life, of course, was the loss of those modern comforts and conveniences relative to his time, modern conveniences. Apart from the Bible, information about Canaan in Abram's days is fairly ambiguous, but what has been discovered confirms the Bible's description of a land without any large urban center. Only a few settlements have been unearthed, each in an area no greater than three acres and no fortifications or public buildings have been discovered. So at God's call, Abram apparently left the comforts of two urban residences behind and spent the remainder of his days as a tent dweller in a sparsely populated land. That's first. But a second implication of Abram's obedience was the abandoning abandoning the traditions of his idolatrous family. Little did he know that his example would be critical to his descendants who would one day be called to leave the conveniences and the gods of Egypt to follow the Lord and to travel to Canaan. We're going to discover in the God of the Word study called Patriarchs that Abram obeyed and went to the place God called him. Hebrews 11.8 tells us that he didn't know where he was going even at the time when God called him. Yet he obeyed and went. His leaving and going have exemplified the life of faith for believers of all time. We're each called to leave behind our old lives of sin and entered into, enter into a new life in Christ. So I want you to get the second principle, and that's that leaving and going describes the call of every believer. Leaving and going describes the call of every believer. Now, God may never ask you to make a geographical move, but in the Christian life, it is critical that we never get too comfortable. God calls his people to be continuously leaving their old lives behind. The Bible actually has a great deal to say about this idea of leaving and going. 
and I want to tell you some of the things it has to say. First, the Bible's characters exemplify leaving and going. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was the ultimate example of leaving and going. He stripped himself of his rights and left the glories of heaven behind to enter our world as a human being. Matthew 4, 18 to 20, tell us that his disciples left what they were doing to follow him. So that's first. Second, the Bible stresses the cost of leaving and going. Matthew 16, 24, tell us that leaving means denying ourselves and going means taking up our cross and following Jesus. Matthew 19, 29 says we need to be willing to leave our family, our homes, and all we have for Jesus' sake. But it carries a wonderful promise that we will receive a hundred times as much in return. Third, the Bible emphasizes the advantages of leaving and going. Psalm 1611 says, the path of the righteous leads to joy. Ultimately, we find gladness in having left everything behind to follow Christ. Philippians 3 tells us, press on because everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, for whose sake Paul considered all things lost. And then fourth, the Bible clearly marks the path of leaving and going for us. The Bible clearly marks the path. His promised plan, as I've said a couple times already, is to deliver us from the paths that lead to our destruction and restore us to a vibrant relationship with him through Jesus. So as Christians, we must break free from the sinful habits and patterns that characterize the world and be reoriented. Ephesians 4 and describe, 5 describe leaving behind our old ways and thinking of thinking and action as putting off the old self. And then our new direction requires new attitudes of mind and calls that the putting on of the new self. The passage says that we're to put off falsehood and put on truth. We're to put off anger and put on forgiveness. We're to put off stealing and put on hard work. We're to put off unwholesome talk and put on encouraging words. We're to put off bitterness, rage, brawling, slander, and every form of malice and put on kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and a life of love and sacrifice. Fifth and finally, the Bible says the end of this path is assured. The end of the path is assured. God works in us to give us the desire to obey him and he completes our transformation into the image of Christ. Well, I want to make sure you understand that leaving and going isn't just for some Christians. You know, some, 
special super spiritual group. And it isn't optional. It should typify the Christian experience. God's promise plan is central to the story of the Bible. And it's also central in the personal story he's writing with my life and with your life. So let me ask you, my friend, what's God currently calling you to leave behind in order to move ahead? Maybe it's one of the sins I named from Ephesians 4. Or maybe it's a personal comfort, a salary, an unhealthy relationship, a habit, an indulgence, however harmless in and of itself, an unhealthy source of entertainment, or a way of doing things that's just, you know, less honoring to him than it ought to be. Maybe we've fallen short by settling along the way. Is there some helpful habit that you've given up? Have you stopped memorizing those verses you were challenged to memorize? Have you given up believing you will ever be consistent with family devotions or personal quiet time? Just given up? Have you given up believing God's going to use you in a particular area that you once believed he sent you to? If you're feeling spiritually barren right now, you know, it could be because you're settling for less than what God has for you. Less than he wants you to do and less than he wants you to be. So brother and sister, I'm here to encourage you today. Don't settle. Look up. Make a new plan. Pray harder. Let's move ahead. But most importantly, let's believe God. His promise plan is for me and for you.